0: Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real, or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Soundsington Media.
2: Hey Meredith, if you landed on Mars, what's the first thing you'd do?
0: I'd say, I'm on Mars! How about you? I'd say, Meredith, where are you? So, you think that we'd go to Mars together?
2: Oh, definitely. We go everywhere together.
0: Yeah, you're right. Did you know that NASA recently launched the Mars 2020 mission and Perseverance rover to search for signs of ancient life?
2: Yes! And did you know that Perseverance is carrying spacesuit materials for testing on the red planet?
0: This mission gets cooler every day!
2: I'm Brian Holden.
0: And I'm Meredith Stepien, and this is Reach, a space podcast for kids.
2: Welcome to REACH, a space podcast for kids. You know, Meredith, we learned so much last week about NASA's Mars 2020 mission, but there's still more to explore.
0: The new Perseverance rover is scheduled to land on the red planet in February 2021, which gives us plenty of time to ask even more questions about Mars.
2: We asked our listeners, if you landed on Mars, what's the first thing you'd do?
0: Here's what they had to say. First, I would plant a flag of the United States. After
2: that, I will look for Martians to play with. Do you think they like making Lego creations?
0: This is Grady, and I'm ten. The first thing I would do when I got to Mars would be looking for aliens.
2: This is Jaguar, and I'm three. And the first thing I would do when I got to Mars is eat the emergency rations. This is Clara, and I'm eight. And the first thing I would do is, like, um get find new feet, because it's probably really hot there. This is was give the magic school bus driver extra tips,
3: and then I'd take a nap. Hi, my name is Mirabel. I'm from Kissimmee, Florida. If I landed on Mars, I think the first thing I would do was draw a smiley face on it and take a picture, because I love smiley faces. And then I think I'd do a little dance.
0: Now that I think of it, the first thing I'd do is put on my spacesuit.
2: I think I'd see if there's good Wi Fi, or as they say on Mars, Wi Fi.
0: Well, we know that, among other things, NASA's Perseverance rover will search for signs of ancient life and collect rock samples on Mars.
2: Cool. You know, I wonder how the rover actually examines those rocks.
0: Well, you're in luck, because this week's guest is Christina Hernandez, Mars 2020 Pixel Instrument Engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory.
2: Jet Propulsion Laboratory? That sounds cool. It is. Christina, thanks so much for joining us on Reach.
3: Thank you for having me on the show. So my name is Christina Hernandez, and I work at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, where basically we build space robots that go and explore the planets and the universe uh, throughout. And I'm working on this really cool mission called the Mars Perseverance Rover Mission, where we're sending a one-ton robot to Mars to go and explore and search for signs of past life.
2: Wow, that is incredible. So you're working on this mission building this one ton space robot how do you even begin to conceptualize that how do you work on that tell us about that process
3: yeah so this mission has been uh, in development for probably nearly 10 years now i've only been on the project for five years but in all jpl missions what we do is we have a team of engineers and scientists who put their heads together and brainstorm what is it gonna take to get to Mars? Or say we wanted to go to Neptune or an asteroid, we would go and figure out how do we get there, why do we want to go there? And they basically have a room filled with Legos and whiteboards and colored pencils and markers and there's engineers you know, brainstorming these missions. And once they have an idea or a concept is what we call it, then they'll start going through the process of actually putting the blocks together, understanding the design, eventually cutting metal, building things, testing them, and eventually, you know, a decade, five years later, however long, we'll launch the thing and actually see if it does what we said we wanted it to do.
2: That's so cool. Especially the part about the room with Legos. I feel like that's something that a lot of our young listeners or maybe even our adult listeners, you know, can
3: relate to. I even want to go work on this team. So we have a couple teams at JPL. Uh, One is called Team X. And it's engineers with different experiences and backgrounds, and they come together and brainstorm, which is the stuff about engineering that a lot of people like, especially when you get to play with Legos and get paid for it. That's really cool.
2: Man, yeah, I thought a job at NASA was cool before. Now I think it's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Christina, you mentioned uh, Team X. Tell us, what's the team that you work on?
3: I work on the surface development team on the Perseverance mission. And so what we do is, I've been on this project for five years, so I've seen different phases, but this current team, we're getting ready to operate this one-ton rover on Mars. And so what does that mean? Well. The rover's quite complicated. You know, it has a mobility system, which is the wheels that a lot of people might have seen already. We actually have a head. We call it the mast. And the head of the rover and the neck of the rover can turn. It has cameras. It has different sensors, all kinds of different science instruments. Um, We also have a power system, the brains of the rover, which is uh, made up of code. So kids, make sure you learn how to program. And so all of these teams together, they have to figure out how are we gonna operate this thing in order to meet our science goals and objectives? And so my focus is on one out of the seven instruments, it's called PIXEL, Um, and it's an instrument that's gonna help characterize the elements that we find in rock samples on Mars. And so each engineer basically has a system that they work on and their job is to test it, put it together, and eventually be in the mission control room when we send these sequences and commands to the rover on Mars.
2: Wow. That and that's right. You know, it's not just like one person operating the rover once it gets there, right? It's like like how many people are are actually operating the rover once it's on the surface?
3: Oh man. So it's it's a team effort right? Well, there might be only a few people who are actually hitting the button that sends the command to go to the rover, there's so much prep work and planning and testing and execution that amounts to, I would say, maybe about 40 to 100 people. It just depends on the activity that we're doing. And so say we're on Mars and you can imagine if you take your arm in front of you and you bend it and you move it around, that's like the rover's robotic arm. And so there's all kinds of tools that Perseverance has on its hand or the turret it is what we call it. And so in order to extend that hand out and put it really close to a rock sample, we need to analyze it, we need to model it, we need to test it. And so you'll have engineers that work on the robotic arm, you'll work you'll have engineers and scientists who work on the instruments and they're the ones who get to say, "Hmm, I want to look at this rock here. Not that rock, but this one here. How is it like, how do we actually go and model that and get to that point so we can do science? And so team effort all around. One of the things, you know, as a, a student and when I was becoming an engineer in school, there's always one problem and there's always an answer. And your your homework, your test says, go and find that answer. What I learned being in the real world and, and working at NASA is that there's many answers uh, there's many opinions and there's many ways of solving a problem. And so when you put your heads together, your goal is to find what is the best answer of many. And so it's a lot of team effort, even with, you know, just operating the rover.
2: Wow. I think that's such a great lesson that can be applied to so many different parts of life. There are many different ways to solve a problem and to, to look for an answer. And then sometimes multiple answers to a single question. Let me back up a little bit. We, we talked about the scientific goals a little bit, but maybe you could restate that for us. What are the scientific goals of perseverance once it arrives on Mars?
3: Yeah, so in order to understand that, you kind of need to look at our history, right? So we've been exploring Mars for over 50 years, and we've sent rovers you know, for the last uh, few decades and landers as well. And all of those rovers and landers, they went to try and understand a fundamental question. Is there water on Mars? And so we have a rover currently at Mars called Curiosity. And part of Curiosity's mission was to answer that question. And she discovered water on Mars. There's a lot of evidence that water existed in in vast amounts in Mars's ancient past. So this is like 3.6 billion years ago. So a really long time ago. And so when you think about it and you ask yourself, well, okay, there's water on Mars. What's the next question that you ask yourself? Well, you ask yourself, was there ever life on Mars? What about ancient past life on Mars? And so Perseverance, her mission is to answer the question of was there ever life on Mars? And we're doing that in different ways. So we have four key goals. The first goal is to understand the geology. you know, for all of you who are studying science in your classes, right, geology is actually really important. I used to think it was a little boring until I learned about planetary geology. And Oh my gosh, rocks, me too. Yes, it's like you should be geeking out right now because rocks <laughs> are really cool. And, and rocks give you so much context for what happened somewhere. If you imagine, you know, you're driving along the car and, you know, you see a mountain range. Depending on where you are in the United States or all around the world, those rocks can tell you how the land that you are driving on formed. And so it's just like that in Mars. But not only do they tell us about how Mars came to be, but it also can lock in potential evidence of past life. And so that's why the first goal of understanding the geology is so important. So after we've understood the geology or have studied it, the other aspect to answering that primary question of was there ever life on Mars is we actually have to go and look for it. And so we have seven scientific payloads on the rover or science tools that are going to help us answer that question, you know, was there ever past life on Mars? And we do that by understanding the chemical makeup of the rock samples that we find. Uh, We are landing on Jezero crater, which is a really cool landing site that scientists and engineers spent years agreeing on. And what that landing site is, it's an ancient delta. So, you know, for those who are learning about geography and maps, you know, an ancient delta is very characteristic to past water. And there's even an ancient lake. Jezero used to be, uh, there used to be a lake the size of Lake Tahoe in California on mars you can imagine all this at some point in its ancient past there has to be life and so what we're going is we're going to look for the past life that could have existed there
2: so cool so cool
3: and the really cool thing about this mission there's a lot and i'll geek out like throughout (laughs) this um but we're collecting samples for the first time for a future mission to bring them back. So that's called Mars Sample Return. So this is the first step, right? In order to bring samples back, you gotta collect them. And so the rover using the instruments um, that it has on board is gonna look for promising samples, rock samples to collect. And a future mission is gonna come and bring them back so that scientists, you know, maybe your listeners who are, you know, studying science and geology, astrobiology can one day Look and understand what these samples tell us about Mars on our labs here on Earth. As you can see, there's just so much that this mission is doing. But the fourth goal is really cool too. For the first time, we're preparing for humans uh, to go to Mars. What does that mean? I mean, we're not sending humans. Well, not yet. But in order to send humans first, we have to prepare. So what type of technology, what types of tools, what type of data do we need to collect so that you know these warm, squishy things that I call humans uh, can go to Mars one day? So jam-packed uh, science objectives on Perseverance.
2: That is so cool. It is so much to think about. And I'm, fe- <laughs> I'm feeling very warm and squishy just thinking about it, you know? Um, in regards to the Mars sample return, How, I understand that the goal is to create a situation where a future mission can pick those up, but how is that going to work?
3: Yeah, so that's the million dollar question or maybe billion dollar question. So (laughs) there, one of the things that I love about engineering is that it is a collaborative multi-nation effort. And so the Mars sample return mission is actually a joint effort between NASA and the European Space Agency. And so here you have like the cream of the crop, all the engineers and scientists around the world, right? They're doing exactly what I mentioned earlier. They're brainstorming. I'm sure they probably pulled out Legos, right? To try and figure out. out. Exactly, it's like the Legos will give you the answer. And so, you know, the Mars Sample Return mission is a multi-part effort, right? So we mentioned collecting samples, that's the first step. Then we have to send some sort of vehicle to go to Mars and collect those samples. Now, once you have those samples in hands, then you need another vehicle or like a transformer type robot, which would be really cool, uh, (laughs) to go and take those samples from Mars into orbit and then eventually Earth. And so right now, you know, there's a basic architecture, or we call it kind of like a plan or a concept that's out there. And so as we learn from Perseverance um, and her mission, we're also gonna use that to inform future Mars sample return efforts.
2: All right, I'd like to ask you a few questions kind of about you and what got you interested in engineering and what led you to working at NASA?
3: Yeah. So that's a fun story. So, you know, when you ask most engineers, you know, how did you get into engineering? What, what, how did you know as a kid that you were Mm going to be an engineer? Most of them will say, oh, well, I took our TV apart and my dad got mad. Well, (laughs) you know, I didn't take my TV apart until I was in college, but what I love to do, I love to read. Um, so I, I'm a book nerd. I'm still a book nerd. Um, But as a kid, I loved reading sci-fi, and I loved checking out books from the library that had really pretty pictures of Saturn and the moon and the Earth from space. And so I learned through reading. And one of the things that I feel got me really riled up about that is that it got my imagination going. And all engineers, you know, we're not just nerds, right? I mean, being a nerd is cool anyways nowadays, but... You know, we are super creative and artistic individuals because we're coming up with ideas, you know, from a blank page. And so reading sci-fi, le- you know, always learning, being a lifetime learner, that's what I call it. Um, it got me interested into eventually tinkering and building and, and wanting to, you know, troubleshoot and explore and get my hands dirty. Uh, but for me, it, it started from a book.
2: All right. Well, on that topic, do you have any sci-fi books that you would recommend to our, our readers? Uh, some of them are younger readers.
3: Yeah. So I, oh, there's too many. Um, so one of my favorite books is Ender's Game. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a really cool uh, space book. Um, I also just started it's it's quite a beefy series and it's a it's a thick book, uh, but it's so cool. It's like a space opera. It's the Expanse series, Um, Mm. and so the first book is Leviathan Wakes, and what's really cool about this is that it takes place in a time where, you know, people are mining asteroids and people are living on Mars and Earth and throughout the solar system, and it's so cool because, you know, in reading it, it seems so realistic to me, Mm. and so, you know, maybe one day we'll be able to work on a mission that does that.
2: That's amazing. I really like that series as well, although I've only seen the TV version that they have on on uh, Amazon Prime TV or whatever. Yeah. So cool. Christina Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it so much.
3: Thank you for having me. You know, for your young listeners, like, don't be afraid to tinker, get your hands dirty, pick up a cool sci-fi book. You know, engineering and science is really where all the fun is. So come and join us. We need you.
2: That's wonderful. Thank you so much.
0: You know, Brian, I love learning so much about Mars, but did you know that the month of August is serving up some great opportunities to see other planets?
2: Yeah. Depending on your vantage point, planets like Venus, Jupiter, and even Saturn will be well-positioned in the night sky for all you emerging astronomers.
0: Did you say Saturn?
2: Yeah. Why?
0: Well, our good friend Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun, took some time out of his schedule to visit with us on this week's edition of Did You Know? Nice. Saturn, are you there? I know you're pretty far away. Thanks for joining us on Reach.
1: Hi there, Brian and Meredith. Thanks so much for having me on the show to tell everyone a few... Out of this world, fun facts about me, Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. How long have you been around, Saturn? I've been around for 4.5 billion years, so I always tell people that if you see a really blazing bright star near me, it's probably my birthday cake because that's a lot of candles, am I right? I have to be careful not to get too close to all those flames since I've made up of 95% hydrogen and 5% helium. Already had a big bang? Don't need another one. And by the way, right now I'm speaking in my hydrogen voice. If I spoke in my helium voice, it would sound like this. Hi, I am Saturn. Doesn't my name have a nice ring to it? Where'd you get your name, Saturn? Actually, I'm named after Saturnus, the Roman god of agriculture, which to be honest, is an odd choice if you ever decide you'd like to do some farming here on Saturn. All your seeds would probably either fall through my gaseous density, or get blown away by winds of up to 1,000 miles an hour. I'm also the second largest planet in the solar system, next to Jupiter, which, by the way, is a lot denser than me, okay? I mean, Jupiter is really dense. Anyway, my diameter measures 75,000 miles across, which is the same as lining up planet Earth nine times in a row. I have a total of 82 known moons, but only 53 of them have formal names. The ones with formal names you have to refer to as like Mr. Titan or Madame Hyperion or Dr. Prometheus. The rest of the moons you can give informal names to like Dave or Sandra or Chuckles. I'm also known for my rings that you can see if you check me out through a telescope at night. Where did my rings come from you may be asking yourself? I believe they're leftover material from when I was formed. Or maybe they're the remains of moons that were destroyed when impacted by other bodies. Trust me, a lot of stuff happens out here that would be really noisy if it wasn't for the fact that it happens in space. Kind of like, if a planet forms in the solar system, does anybody hear it? Regardless, I believe I'm Beyonce's favorite planet because she once said, 4.5 billion years ago, someone took a look at Saturn and must have liked it because they put a ring on it. See what I did there? I go around the sun very slowly. One year on Saturn is more than 29 years on Earth. And because I spin on my axis very fast, an entire day on me is the same as about 10 hours on Earth. That's good news and bad news for you. It means that your school days are way shorter, but also that your two-day weekends would be over in less than a day. You'd only be able to enjoy a one-day Saturday weekend, which is maybe the reason Saturday is the one day of the week named after me. I don't think you'd want to live on me because I have little or no oxygen. My second largest moon, Rhea, has an atmosphere of oxygen and carbon dioxide, but as far as human colonizing happening on it, don't hold your breath. (laughs) See what I did there? Well, thanks for your time, Saturn.
2: Sounds like you've got a lot of it to spare.
1: Well, kids, I hope you learned something today. I'd like to end today's talk with a joke. Why does Saturn take showers instead of baths? Because it doesn't want to leave any rings around the tub. (laughs) See what I did there?
0: Hey, Brian, remember earlier in the show when you mentioned that NASA's Perseverance rover is taking spacesuit samples to test on Mars? I do. Well... To learn more about how spacesuits are built to protect people in space, I spoke with Daniel Bateman, Public Programs Manager at Exploration Place, who's here with a neat at-home activity about the purpose of spacesuits and how they're put together. Well, hi Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Reach. How are you today?
4: I am doing wonderful, thank you very much for having me. I am excited about this.
0: Can you tell me about Exploration Place really quick?
4: Exploration Place is a science museum here in Wichita, Kansas, and we are multidiscipline. We have all kinds of things from a medieval castle for kids to learn about physics and motion. We have a design-build fly where we talk about how airplanes are made. Because we are the air capital of the world here in Wichita, we build a lot of airplanes. We talk about the whole process from the design phase all the way through the engineering and construction of airplanes. But what we're going to talk about today with spacesuits is specifically entertaining for me because I have seen some of these spacesuits being developed back in the 1990s that are now finally getting a chance to start getting flown. And we're seeing some of the tests happen and some of the same scientists and engineers that were working on these spacesuits back in the 90s are now the ones leading this charge of let's take some spacesuit samples to Mars on Perseverance.
0: Oh my goodness. That's so cool.
4: Uh, The basic idea of a spacesuit, spacesuits are designed to replicate earth outside of our atmosphere. And so you have to provide pressure. You have to provide temperature control. You have to provide communication, oxygen, waste removal, because you have carbon dioxide coming out. So you have to be able to get rid of that and continuously, you can't just carry an 800 pound oxygen tank on your back. So you have to be able to take care of this carbon dioxide and then replace it with clean oxygen. So the astronauts uh, can breathe and do things like that. So it's very important. And so watching from the nineties up until now, the. The style has changed a little bit. Uh, it's gotten a lot sleeker. We've gotten better, ma- some better materials, but some of the things we're using right now are still Teflon-coated polyfabric and Kevlar. Some of the same things that we had back then, but they've put- been able to put them into different designs, and they look a lot better. If you look at the difference between how we landed on the moon and what the guys in SpaceX Dragon flew in, completely mm. different. I mean, way cooler looking, uh, much more sophisticated looks because we've been able to miniaturize electronics too.
0: Yeah. I'm imagining the 90s suit as having like a backwards hat and like a space, (laughs) (laughs) like a little space uh, skateboard. As long as there's still a pocket for my fruit by the foot, then I'm happy.
4: That is actually cool because inside the old spacesuits, um, if you go back to the, the EVA suits that we used for the shuttle era, they're actually at one point they had a little, it was almost like fruit by the foot, but it was actually fruit leather. And it was a little bit thicker, Like a, think of like a granola bar size. that would stick out in the front of the spacesuit right in front of their face so that if they got snacky during an eight-hour spacewalk, they could <laughs> lean their head forward, pull it up, then bite it off. Because if you bit it off right down at the bottom, you wouldn't have anything to grab the next time.
0: Wow. There is so much to think about when designing a spacesuit.
4: Right. And so I've been thinking about this really cool activity that kids can do where they can actually design their own protective garment. But I couldn't figure out. Nobody has an astronaut at home. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking people could get a potato. And we'll make the potato. The astronaut, And then what we're going to do is kids can design a protection for that potato, because if you drop, I'm going to, I'm going to say, let's say it's a screwdriver and you're going to do this safely. You're going to have on safety glasses. You're going to make sure your feet are out of the way and you're going to drop a screwdriver from shoulder height at a potato and there's nothing on it, it's going to go into the potato. It's going to pierce the potato. And then you have a popped potato and nobody likes that. That's no good. Mm -hmm. So if you take materials from around your house and think about things like paper, think about things like Ziploc bags in order to hold an atmosphere. Think about aluminum foil to reflect sunlight. Think about really, really thin cardboard that's movable like a spacesuit needs to be you can't put anything hard that you can't bend because then the spacesuit wouldn't be able to move so if you're going to design the spacesuit for a potato that's going to protect it from an impact you want to make sure that it has mobility and flexibility to it so that that potato if it was a person would be able to move a little bit and you want to layer those things together and then do some tests and I think that would be a lot of fun. I think kids could, could get into that idea of what it takes to really design a layered spacesuit that would protect a potato from getting pierced by something getting dropped at it.
0: Absolutely. What would you name your potato that you uh, designed a spacesuit if for? If I
4: designed a potato, I think, uh, I think Pete is a good potato name.
0: You know what I'm thinking about? How mm. hot my driveway is right now because um, it's a black driveway and when it's in the sun, it gets really, really hot. I wonder if I could somehow try to protect my potato from the hot surface of my driveway if I left a potato outside all day. Well,
4: certainly find- that would be that would be a great experiment too because that's one of the other things on Mars is that thermal protection. Anytime you're in space, you have to protect from thermal things. So you could try and protect the base of the potato and then you could take temperature readings during the day, maybe put in a, 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 a thermometer that you could look at it di- different times during the day and see how hot it gets. See what colors protect it better from heat Uh, Looking at the sun, what color are most spacesuits when you look at them? They're almost all white because it reflects a lot of light, which also reflects a lot of heat. A black spacesuit would be really, really warm. Probably not a good thing.
0: Mm -mm. No. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait to see everybody's photos of their potatoes, and I hope they all draw faces on their potatoes. And I think I'm going to make mine a potato cat named Peter. (laughs) Thank you so much, Daniel. It was so nice to meet you and to be able to talk to you.
4: Well, thank you so very much for having me on, and I had a great time. This is always fun to talk about.
0: Hey, Daniel, if people want to learn more about where you work and what you do uh, at the Exploration Place, uh, do you have a link or a website that people can go to?
4: Right now, there's a lot of different online content that we have on our YouTube page. You can just search for Exploration Place. Uh, You can also go to our website, which is explorationplace.org. And you can always find us on Facebook as well, where we have a lot of live videos that we come on and do. We've done a ton of different science shows. All those videos are available not only on our Facebook page, but also on our YouTube channel uh, at Exploration Place.
0: Thanks so much to Daniel Bateman for teaching us all about spacesuits.
2: And don't forget... Anytime you're working on an at-home activity, make sure to always get your parents' permission before constructing potato-based protection devices.
0: And remember to send us a photo of your potato spacesuit to reachthepodcast at gmail.com or tag us on Twitter or Instagram at reachthepodcast.
2: Gotta protect those potatoes.
0: Make sure they don't get roasted.
2: Or mashed.
0: Or turned into fries.
2: I think we're done here. You know, Meredith, I think I'm going to go read a book.
0: I was thinking the same thing. Christina made a great point. If you want to get into space exploration, the first thing you need to do is start reading books. I really loved that interview, and I keep thinking about how Legos are great for brainstorming.
2: Yeah. And also, I really liked it when Christina said that there are many answers and many opinions and many ways of solving a problem. So when putting your heads together, your goal is to find the best answer of many. For additional online resources and this month's sky-watching tips, check out our show notes. As always, we want to acknowledge that not everyone has access to computers or internet.
0: And if you're not able to get online, many local libraries offer publicly available internet access.
2: Thanks for joining us for Reach, a space podcast for kids. We're your hosts, Brian Holden
0: and Meredith Stepien. This episode of Reach was written by Sandy Marshall with Nate DeFort, Meredith Stepien, and Brian Holden. Reach is produced by Nate DeFort and Sandy Marshall, who's a solar system ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and edited by Nate DeFort.
2: Our theme song and additional music was composed by Jesse Case.
0: Our logo was created by Stephen Lyons.
2: And we'd like to offer a very special thanks to Christina Hernandez, Mars 2020 Pixel Instrument Engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Follow Christina online at Estrellas y Café. We'd also like to say thank you to Kala Cofield at NASA's JPL.
0: Saturn was voiced by the great Gary Jones, who you know from his reoccurring role as Walter Harriman on Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis. Follow Gary online at the Gary Jones.
2: And thanks as well to Daniel Bateman, Public Programs Manager at Exploration Place, for this week's at-home activity. To learn more about Exploration Place, visit exploration.org.
0: And a shout out to our REACH learning community for the excellent thought starters, thanks to Olivia, Brady, Jaguar, Clara, Carter, Mirabelle, and all of our friends from the Cool Facts About Animals, Book Power for Kids, and Curious Kid podcasts. Follow links to all of these great shows in our show notes.
2: Do you have a question about space that's been on your mind?
0: If so, we'd love to hear from you. Our bi-weekly segment entitled Reaching Out is our chance to answer your questions. Tune into Reaching Out next week to find out how you can be featured in an upcoming episode.
2: You know, Meredith, I've always wondered, what's the weather like on planet Neptune?
0: Well, Brian, Neptune has giant spinning storms larger than planet Earth itself.
2: Sounds like if we were on Neptune, we'd have a lot of inside days.
0: We're glad you're digging Reach, so be sure to tell your friends and leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice or share an episode on social media.
2: If you'd like to find us online, visit at Reach the Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or on our website at reachthepodcast.com.
0: Reach is a production of Soundsington Media committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com
4: For over six years, The Past and the Curious has been winning fans, sharing stories of real people from the past, and making people smile. I'm Mick Sullivan, author of I See Lincoln's Underpants, which is a book about, well, famous people's underwear. You'll find all of those stories and much, much more in the 100 plus episodes of The Past and the Curious that are currently available. Find it in all the usual podcast places. The Past and the Curious with Mick Sullivan. That's me.